All eyes are on the U.S. political landscape heading into the 2018 midterm elections in November. With all 435 seats of the House of Representatives and about one-third of Senate spots up for grabs, the next decade of politics lies in the hands of voters. Party control of both the House and the Senate will determine the future of the current presidency. Coming off the controversial 2016 presidential election, the midterms will not be without hot topics. I'm Erin Katie Meehan, and I'll be your host as we navigate the political landscape of the midterms. The elections come during the height of the ongoing special counsel investigation that began in 2017. As the consequences of data mining, fake news, and alleged collusion continue to unfold, the question of how modern technologies will impact current and future elections continues to be asked. The emergence of fake news on social media has been compared to Cold War scare tactics. According to an article called Social Media and Fake News in the 2016 election, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, misinformed stories were shared over 37 million times over the course of the 2016 presidential election campaign cycle. Beyond that, 87 million Facebook users were affected by the Cambridge Analytica data mining scandal, which sold their profile information to companies that could use it to influence voters' opinions. As the midterms approach, the influx of information, social media campaigning, and apprehension has not slowed. It leaves us with the question, how will elections shift and evolve in the digital age? As we get closer and closer to the 2018 midterm elections in the United States, Acknowledging the role of technology and the media in current elections, specifically social media and that of Facebook, is important in understanding how we got to where we are today. So we sat down with Siva Vadiahanthan, author of Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. His book explains how social media is undermining progress and thought, and it provides the first comprehensive account of the effects that Facebook has on our lives and, inevitably, on our world. I'm Siva Vadianathan. I'm a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, uh, and I'm the author of Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Great. Thank you. Welcome, Siva. So your book is one of the first comprehensive investigations into Facebook and its effect, not just on our lives, but within and on our democracy. How did you approach this seemingly, well, huge topic. I I wanted to uh, talk about the ways that Facebook is affecting how we think about the world, how we look at the world, what we prioritize, and how we engage with each other about political matters. Uh, because that is one of the core functions of a healthy democracy, the, the idea that humans can deliberate 
uh, often across distances of perspective and opinion and interest and still arrive at either a compromise or uh, a decision through which one side loses but goes on to battle another day or argue another day, right? That, you know, when we think about the core function of a democratic republic, that's kind of it, right? That we can uh, disagree, work toward uh, a common solution uh, based on a common set of facts, uh, and we don't beat each other up if uh, one side loses, right? That, that's, it's a pretty good system. It's, it's carried us through a lot of, a lot of tough times, uh, imperfect as it is. But my concern grew after the 2016 election for two reasons. One, it appeared to me that when Donald Trump ran most of his campaign on Facebook, he did it below radar. And what I mean by that is he exploited Facebook's advertising system in a rather brilliant way. He didn't break any laws and he didn't break any ethical canons of campaigning. Uh, he used the tools available to him. And Facebook has this really powerful, really inexpensive advertising platform. So instead of putting television ads on the air, covering the airwaves in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, the three states that flipped to give him the presidency in the Electoral College, he focused on Facebook. He poured money into Facebook at a much higher rate than Hillary Clinton's campaign did. Now, what Facebook gave him the opportunity to do was to segregate and segment discrete packets of voters. You can select them based on their interests and their passions, right? Some of them might be really interested in guns. And of course, you can segment people out geographically. So you can, you can run different ads for different people who live in the same neighborhood. You can run different ads for different people who live in the same household. And this is exactly what he did. And you can also test ads during the day and see which version runs better. Well, again, this is like an a dream for advertisers, right? This is, this is what they've always wanted. It's the best possible way to sell shoes. It's not so good for democracy because there's no accountability there's no feedback. There's no response. So we don't know what Donald Trump's campaign said about him or about Hillary Clinton or about anything else in most of these ads. There's no record of them. They were ephemeral. There was no way to respond. There was no way for journalists to examine them and criticize them or explain them. It seemed to me like there was a there was an essential loop in political communication that had been closed. So we don't actually know what happened in the campaign or what messages won those states for Donald Trump. We do know that those three states were won by a total of 80,000 votes, right? There were 110,000 seats in the University of Michigan football stadium. And, and yet these three states were, were won by, by 80,000 votes. The entire presidency was decided by these 80,000 votes across three states. That's stunning if you think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and you can imagine like 80,000 votes. Well, if you move 5,000 people who might have voted for Hillary Clinton because they're union members and you remind them of some reason not to vote for Hillary Clinton. And it doesn't matter if they vote for Donald Trump. If they don't vote, you know, mission accomplished. So my book then, I was very careful. I wanted to move beyond the 2016 election and move beyond the United States. So it's not just about our democracy. It's about democracy, small d democracy around the world. Because the, the methods that Donald Trump used in 2016 were a um, sort of a light friendly version of uh, what happened in the 2016 Brexit 
uh, um, referendum in England, uh, the 2016 election of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, the 2014 election of Narendra Modi in India. Uh, and we've seen Facebook play a role in the rise of authoritarian and nationalist candidates and movements everywhere from Italy to Brazil. Um, and, you know, we're about to have an election in Brazil uh, that might very well be won by a very right-wing populist, and he is running his entire campaign on Facebook. So looking at it globally, I, I, I saw that there's, you know, there's certain core aspects of Facebook that definitely work against any healthy deliberation. When you really take a step back, and I think for us, at least as we're talking about these situations happening, um, working at Oxford, we have the privilege of working on a plethora of different kinds of books. And um, as we have done that, we've realized that a lot of what you're talking about um, in your book um, and in the way that Facebook has been utilized harkens back to um, what we would call war propaganda, basically. But I think people, especially those younger demographics, don't realize that. Look, most of us are uh, in the United States have taken our democratic culture for granted. Um, most of the people in the world have, right? But even in Western Europe, where there are strong memories and everything's taught in school in ways that are not taught here, um, we are seeing the rise of far-right nationalist groups. So um, it's not necessarily about youth or memory. It's about the susceptibility of people who are undergoing stress in their society to be seduced by a simple message. So a simple message that is framed as indignation, resentment, that's the sort of message that really works on Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. So Facebook is not so good for carrying messages of depth, complexity, of, uh, of tenderness of spirit, of collegiality, of all of the things, all of the values and emotions that are crucial to making a dem democracy work. And, and remember, we built up institutions to correct for this, right? As animals, we are not so good at those things. Mm -hmm. Facebook maximizes for engagement, right? That's the right. phrase in Silicon Valley, right? Engagement means clicks, shares, likes, and comments. What gen generates engagement? Well, things that, that cause strong emotions or prompt strong emotions. And what does that? Well, cat videos and puppy photos and baby photos, but also hate speech and conspiracy theories and, uh, and uh, um, calls to genocide, right? That mm -hmm. stuff, that stuff rockets around Facebook because people feel strongly about it and not always positively. And so this is how it's different from 1930s propaganda. 1930s propaganda was um, was top down. It was it was it was point to many. It was broadcast and it was broadcast with the energy that that you know the state put behind it, mm -hmm. right? In, in in Nazi Germany or or some organization would have put behind it, right? Before they had cover uh, of the state. Um, so stylistically it can be the same. The dynamics very different because what we see with Facebook now uh, and with Google, uh, and to a lesser extent with Twitter, is algorithmic amplification. That right. algorithms pick up certain signals and favor certain kinds of content, and that is something the Nazis never had going for them. You know, the nature of propaganda is also different in this sense. It's not just about convincing you to hate some group. It's not just about convincing you that this leader is the solution to all your problems. That's still part of it. But it's also a function of distraction and disengagement, right? It's a uh, the flood of images, the flood of calls to emotion are meant to exhaust us, are meant to distract us, are meant to get us to to believe less that there's something we can do about it, to believe less in the institutions that 
help us solve problems and, and to believe less than each other, right? To mistrust each other as well as our institutions. And that's working beautifully. So, so if you look at what the Russian agents tried to do on Facebook and, and perhaps succeeded, if Kathleen Hall Jameson's book is persuasive on this matter, right? They had two goals. One was to uh, knock us off of our belief that things can get better and knock us off of our belief that our institutions and practices of democracy um, have a chance to make our lives better. Uh, And at the same time, then focus on, you know what, the person of Donald Trump can go a long way to getting us there. So, you know, the Russian agents were, were, were both trying to get us to be confused and weird and, and, and hate each other and to get Donald Trump elected. Right. People do consume their news their daily updates via Facebook and other social media platforms. Does this make them vulnerable then Mm -hmm. to all of these issues that you're highlighting? Yeah, collectively, it makes us all very vulnerable. I think we're seeing the results of it around the world. Right. In fact, the U.S. got off easy. I mean, I think that's the um, the acute damage to the cultures of democracy and faith in institutions are are much more clearly seen in places like Hungary and in Italy uh, and in Brazil and Mexico, in India and in the Philippines and in Indonesia. Um, the worst example is Myanmar, which uh, was just opening up to the very concept and practice of democracy as late as 2014 and immediately invited smartphones in with high, with data services and a special Facebook platform called Free Basics, where if you use it and use Facebook, it doesn't count against your data plans. So now in Myanmar, Facebook is everything. It's the entire media ecosystem. And not coincidentally, calls to genocide flow across it. And we've seen something close to genocide with the, the Rohingya minority. So how do citizens, and maybe maybe we're so far in, mm-hmm. in that, that at this point there's not much we can do outside of a radical revolution, but how do citizens, not just of the U.S., but of the world who are using Facebook, be mindful mm-hmm. of this and, and help change the tide, if you will, if they can? Um, as Facebook users, not much we can do. Uh, we are, you know, even the most astute of us are likely to fall for false campaigns and get distracted and get angry and get indignant and use Facebook in ways that um, ultimately fray our society. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of, of playing that game. Uh, quitting Facebook isn't going to make a difference. If a million Americans quit tomorrow, that million would be made up in, you know, by people signing on in places like Brazil and Kenya and Nigeria uh, in the next six months. Uh, there are 2.2 billion people who use Facebook around the world. So the, the notion that you could actually sign off of Facebook and send a message to Facebook, that, that doesn't follow. The key is not to act as an individual, but to act as a citizen, to spread awareness of the fact that this media form is fraying our society, our institutions, and our democracy and that it's having worse effects around the world and build our muscles up in other ways. So some very smart people have to get together and think of ways that we can build platforms and expand platforms and reinvest in platforms that can facilitate deliberation. Facebook's really good for motivation. If you wanna fill the national mall with 4 million women with four weeks notice, Facebook is a great way to do it. There's probably never been a better way invented to do something like that. And motivation is key to the operation of any democracy. You want to be able to find like-minded people and 
and help them coordinate their actions and show up in the same place at the same time to do something. And that's exactly what Facebook helps us do, but it does not help us deliberate. It doesn't help us come to some reasoned conclusion or agenda uh, among a diverse set of views or a diverse set of orientations or, or, or perspectives. So uh, that is the key. We need to have institutions that help us think better, that help us learn deeper, that help us converse more respectfully. So we need to invest, as citizens, we should be campaigning to have our leaders invest more in public libraries, more in public schools, more in public parks, in town halls, in public forums, uh, more in scientific organizations and for scientific research, more in universities. We should be encouraging our, 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 our children, our family members, our elders, um, to put down the phone and pick up a book. Uh, you know, just a simple thing like that can do far more than, um, uh, than resigning from Facebook. Um, Facebook brings value to people, right? It, it helps us keep up with our, you know, our, our, our cousin's kid who is going to graduate from high school, right? That's an important thing. It used to be that we would uh, maybe catch up with people at that distance you know, maybe once a year uh, and let them flow in and out of our lives. And, and now we can keep up fairly constant conversations with people, and that's nice. It's maybe not the most valuable thing in the world, and I think the overall the price of that convenience is quite devastating. Uh, but people who use it, 2.2 billion people using Facebook, they're not fools, right? They, they get something of value out of it. So because it's not going away and because quitting Facebook isn't going to make a difference, we really need to work outside of Facebook to strengthen our ability to think collectively and live as responsible citizens. And and that doesn't count as Instagram or WhatsApp because <laughs> – right. Those are also owned by Facebook, they and I, I see I see protests of people saying, "I'm giving up Facebook and I'm joining Instagram." Exactly, I'm like, you're doing the same and thing. And it seems to me pretty clear that uh, over the next few years, Facebook and Instagram will be merged in some way. Mm-hmm. Already, they 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 share the back end uh, uh, data. Uh, tracking of everything you do and care about. Mm-hmm. Instagram, though, is designed better right now. So again, uh, you know, in 2018, Instagram is f- does almost no damage, um, except in cases like you know just distraction and addiction and yeah. you know body image problems for you know y- you know teenage girls who who spend too much time on it. Yeah. Those are all problems that have existed in the media world before, right? Um, but you know Instagram because you can't forward things on Instagram, it means you it's not a good propaganda model. It's not a good propaganda tool. I really fear that that's the first thing to go. Like that the new leaders of Instagram are going to install an ability to forward things mm-hmm. so that things can go viral and once they can go viral that's when you know that's when the forces trying to spread propaganda misinformation right. disinformation jump in um, right. and it's going to be really nasty yeah so one of the things that um, came up in or in my discussions with author uh, Nadine Strassen of her book hate um, was that the First Amendment doesn't cover, the internet, right? So, it's well, it does. Really, it does because the government can't do anything right. to limit speech on the internet, right? So, therefore, it's impossible to do things like charge anyone for hate speech on the internet, right? Where there are there are loopholes in where you can charge someone for hate speech, right? When they um, 
when it's incendiary enough to cause harm or to make somebody feel unsafe, which absolutely I think we all can attest to that some of the hate speech, not some, I would say the majority, all of it, Mm -hmm. does do that. But there is no way right now without an unrealized amount of funds to actually do much about it. Well, except these companies could just decide to do something about it. Right. And there's nothing stopping them from doing that, right? So if Facebook and Twitter um, and Reddit, and Reddit has actually decided to just kick off all the racists, they could do it, you know, take them a couple weeks. They're easy to find. They make themselves known. We could just kick them off and say, you know, this is going to make our experience, the experience of our platform better. And I don't, I'm, I'm baffled why they just haven't done that. Like, right. instead, they hem and haw about their commitment to free speech, which is a false commitment or a fake commitment or a shallow commitment, probably because the money came too easily, too quickly. They don't think of themselves as a company devoted to making money. Right? The people at the top think of themselves as social engineers. They have certain values. One of them is a radical commitment to free speech, and they want to structure the experience around that because they truly believe in the marketplace of ideas model, um, and they truly believe that the best ideas will win. Um, you know, the leaders of Twitter have said this over and over as well, um, despite all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> I was you know, say. but they, this is what they believe, right? They, yeah. they believe in an undergraduate, you know, libertarian paperback level of um, commitment to free speech, um, you know, which is fine for the dorm room, you know, sitting around reading the fountainhead. That's great. You know, go for it. But but they're running major platforms that have an effect in the world. Uh, and instead of saying what is best for the experience of most of our users, uh, what is best for the safety of a good number of our users, they keep going through these weird uh, you know, calculations over what to do and what not to do. And it's just, it's been bizarre to me to watch them do this, right? Alex Jones, kicking Alex Jones off of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube should have been an easy call. I didn't understand what the, you know, what the hesitation was. They ultimately did it. Um, and, you know, their businesses have not collapsed and the uh, the world has not ended. And, and Alex Jones is now stuck um, walking around the streets of Austin with a with a megaphone, that's the best you can do, you know. So like, world's a little better now mm-hmm. because of that. So, um, so I don't know that, that whole that whole uh, commitment to free speech thing never made sense to me from the point of view of those businesses. But they're you know they're immersed in it. Yeah. Do you think governments or third party organizations like, for example, the ACLU? Mm-hmm do something in terms of, for example, you brought up um, the Myanmar uh, example. Wouldn't that be enough to see what they're doing to have some kind of, you know, crimes against humanity uh, type of lawsuit Mm. for Facebook? That would be a tough one. Uh, And I'm not sure that's the the most effective uh, strategy. Um, I, I would say that there are other things that interest groups like the ACLU could push for and on and that our government could do something about. And that is um, the our, our rights to our own data, our ability to control how companies use the data that we produce. We produce through our decisions, our actions, our movements, right? Facebook is tracking you whenever you carry your phone around the city. And I, this could be a little too conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist, but I, it, I had it happen to myself too. 
where I had a conversation with someone on the phone mm -hmm. and then I went on Facebook and the ads were based on the topic of my phone conversation. A lot and of I genuinely have, yeah. went down this <laughs> rabbit hole where I, I said to myself, you need to throw this in the river right, right. and just be done with so it. So a lot of people have reported that phenomenon um, anecdotally. Facebook really doesn't listen to your microphone. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to. Uh, that's more energy than it needs to expend. Um, and you can imagine it trying to do that for 2.2 billion people. That's a, that's a lot of processing. <laughs> it also says a lot about my <laughs> ego, right? That I assume. But Facebook someone. doesn't have to listen to you because Facebook already knows you that's and true. is predicting you, right? So if you entered a search term on Google on any of the computers you've ever used Facebook on, Facebook knew what you were looking for mm -hmm. um, and can associate you with that desire. But also, if someone like you has behaved in a certain way, um, Facebook will guess that you want to behave in a certain way, buy a certain thing, vote for a certain person, and we'll put those ads up. Um, so it's a lot of predictive stuff based on what it knows about you statistically and how it correlates with other people who, who live the same lives. Wow. Or, so you have doppelgangers out there, yeah. you know, thousands of people who, whose consumer patterns and ideological patterns and movie interests all right. align with yours. And I'm feeling very um, zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, understanding that no one is an original person. We're all just constructs of the people who came before us. Well, I would say we are in real life, but we are not to these big data vendors right. who flatten us into our behaviors, decisions, and desires. We're more than our desires, right? All they know is our desires, um, which is dangerous enough, right? So, but, but, but flattening us out into that um, makes us uh, two-dimensional beings to them statistical phenomena to them. Um, and so we have to fight back and rehumanize ourselves. We have to reinflate ourselves into three dimensions uh, and deal with each other as something more than that, right? So we, we should demand that our police forces not use big collections of data to try to assess how much how dangerous our fellow citizens are to us and to each other. Mm -hmm. We should in, instead ask them to treat people as individuals and as, as and as as full human beings. Um, and that's a tough one uh, because it's so easy and convenient to go the data route. Right. Um, and that's really where the battle is, right? So this notion that we should be fully rehumanized we shouldn't just be data subjects. That's something the ACLU should take on and to some degree is. It's certainly a subject that is consuming engineers right now around the world, data scientists around the world. They're very worried about what they've built. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're primed for a really deep set of conversations about what that might mean going forward. So, Siva, I have a big question for you then. What do you see happening based on what we saw in 2016, even what we're seeing in terms of backlash from the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but how do you see the midterms playing out, the next presidential right. campaign, and then, uh, you know, the democracy in, the, in not just the U.S., but as we've talked about around the world, right. 10, 50, 100 years from now? So in terms of the uh, prospect for rich and stable democracy in the United States, I am not optimistic, but it's not necessarily because of Facebook. I think Facebook is a big part of it, only because it's detracting for our, from our ability to think deeply and collectively about our problems. Um, I, th I think the bigger threat is merely that we're 
systematically disenfranchising large numbers of Americans uh, to to rig elections um, through gerrymandering or you know uh, voter registration purges or closing polls early those sort of you know not enough voting booths at polls those sort of strategies the sort of old school strategies of disenfranchisement seem to be very effective um, and we will see if they if they can triumph above the uh, motivation that um, those of us who would like people to vote um, have. So there, that's a whole other battlefield outside of my scholarly area. But in terms of the media ecosystem, I am very worried. You know, we're going to continue to vote and we're going to continue to elect people and they're all going to wear red ties and blue suits and they're going to put their hand on the Bible and they're going to say they're going to do blah, blah, blah. And they're going to, some of them are going to uh, enact policies I like and some of them are going to enact policies I don't like. That's all fine. That's all operational. But fundamentally, the reason that democracy matters is that we can solve problems, and right now we can't solve problems because we cannot even identify them and agree on them. You know, we're, one of the things we're seeing is uh, that, that Facebook is uh, trying to prevent the last attack. Right, the last attack, 2016, our our, our social media feeds were uh, overrun by Russian propaganda uh, and by. Um, lots of different efforts to interfere. And Facebook in the United States has uh, put its efforts at stopping that from happening. But uh, chances are that wasn't what the Russians were going to try to do this time anyway, right? They they made their point. They they managed to get their guy elected and they managed to to uh, convince us that our, our, our democracy is flawed. So mission accomplished for them, right? What we really have to worry about are, um, are all the other forces within the United States that are undermining democracy. They don't all come from outside and they don't all have what Facebook calls inauthentic accounts. There are some people with some very authentic accounts who are trying to uh, roll back democracy in this country. And Facebook has decided to ignore that problem because that problem is essential to how Facebook operates, right? Facebook operates at the scale of 2.2 billion people. It operates with algorithmic amplification and it operates this, this really super effective advertising system. Those are the three things that make Facebook Facebook. And any reform that doesn't attack those three things is futile or is at least cosmetic at best, right? And that means that the problem with Facebook is Facebook. And that's why I'm not optimistic that any of these efforts Facebook is putting forth to protect us are ultimately going to make a difference. As somebody who genuinely values and is excited by data and has an understanding of the opportunities that uh, data scientists and engineers and algorithms present to human society. I think that when we talk about algorithms, people get a little bit glassy-eyed, yep. right? And that's that's actually a great tactic in the case of this because once you mention algorithms, people immediately feel defeated. I'm not a data scientist. I don't know how to write code mm -hmm. to fight back against the current. And even, as you mentioned, data scientists and engineers are starting to realize kind of that power mm -hmm. that they've created, where we're seeing algorithms that are adapting so quickly um, that their original use is now completely different than their current abilities. Right. How can people combat that? 
It, uh, it almost feels like you're combating special forces, right? You don't have the skills. You don't have the well, understanding. But, but even, if you, even if you could write code, that's that wouldn't mean you could respond to other people who write code. But we can write letters to our congresspeople, and we can write letters to the editor, and we can write laws, right? We can write legislation. Um, we can write to our friends, right? The, the languages we do have and we're good at are the tools we should be using. We should be fighting back against the tyranny of algorithms by um, choosing for ourselves what we read and what we view and who we associate with. We should not be outsourcing that decision to Facebook or Google. Uh, Once we realize that's what we're doing, like every time I use Google, I'm outsourcing Google to decide for me what is true, right, and, and important in the world. Uh, every time I use Facebook, I am outsourcing to Facebook the decision of uh, of which of my acquaintances should uh, uh, influence what I think about today. Uh, if you think about it in that sense, you go, "Well, I'm not going to. I don't. I don't want those people and or, and the the code that they wrote to make that decision. I would like to choose whether I want to listen to what my mom has to say today. I want to choose whether I want to listen." to uh, what my cousin has to say or what my coworker has to say uh, rather than leave it to Facebook. So, so we, we have tools, we're not helpless um, and we're not hopeless, but let's not believe that there are simple responses. Mm-hmm. The only response to these problems is political. Political responses take years, take commitment, take fortitude and take courage. Uh, and those are hard things to ask of people. Um, so Especially that's, when you can just hit like. Yes, exactly. But that's why I'm not naive about our chances of success. Right. But I see any other response as, as inviting failure necessarily. Mm-hmm. Can we expect progressive change for the better? Or should we assume this to be the new normal when it comes to not just our elections, but the future of our democracy? how media and technology will impact this is a question that Jamie Susskind attempts to answer in Future Politics Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. He uses insights of political philosophy and technology to show how technologies are already influencing issues of power, liberty, democracy, and social justice. We sat down with Jamie to ask him some penetrating questions about where he thinks power will lie in the future with governments, with tech giants, with individuals, or with artificial intelligence itself. I'm Nicole Pundle, and I'm the executive producer of the Oxford Comment podcast, and I'm here today with Jamie Susskind, author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Hello. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you study and what you're interested in. So the book is about how technology is transforming the way we live together. And the big thesis is that those who control the most powerful technologies will increasingly control the rest of us. By background, I worked in politics, including in the Senate here in the States, but also for politicians back in the UK. I then trained as a lawyer and I practice as a discrimination lawyer. Uh, in the United Kingdom. But I wrote this book during a fellowship uh, at Harvard University's Buckman Klein Center for Internet and Society, 
which is one of the best places in the world to sit at the intersection between tech and the social sciences. What does our personal data being shared mean for you know, voters for this upcoming midterms and elections in the future? Well, we know from the last election that the more information is gathered about individuals, the easier it is to influence them, and that's not particularly um, hard to understand. It was said that when President Trump was elected, that Cambridge Analytica, who were working for him, had 5,000 data points for each of the individual voters that they were targeting. That is to say they had 5,000 separate bits of information about them that had been gathered about those people during the course of their lives by their digital technologies in which they interacted, gathered and brought together and repackaged and sold onto these political consultants. Mm -hmm. And what it then means is that individual voters can be targeted with individual messages which are catered to what the algorithms and the data suggest that they are interested in, which means that you might receive a different political advertisement to the one that I see. Um, I imagine that that kind of technology is being deployed fairly extensively in these midterms, albeit that I suspect people will be trying to do so in a way that's uh, less open to criticism than before. But the broader point about technology that I make in the book is that it's not just about winning elections. It's about persuading us and influencing us generally. Of course, it's the basis for all online advertising as well as political advertising. But knowing that data has been gathered about us actually makes us police our own behavior. We discipline ourselves. We know that we're less likely to do things that are perceived as sinful or shameful or wrong when we know that we're being watched, which is why when you know, when the self-driving car comes into mass circulation, it'll be much harder to secretly go somewhere without telling your family or wherever because the car will be recording where you're going. It's just a very simple example. Another one is that there was a story here in the States last year where someone was accused of the murder of his wife, and he, he said in his defense that there was a burglary and that they had both been tied up and then she was murdered. But in fact, the data recorded on her Fitbit showed that she'd been moving around at the time of her death, suggesting that she was in fact running away from the assailant, uh, who it was found by the jury was in fact her husband. So we things that you don't, little things you don't often think about, lead data to allow others to see us, to influence us, and cause us to discipline ourselves in ways that aren't always intuitive. Right, right. And I feel like the initial place people think that they're going to be targeted is online with like Facebook specifically, but it's even more than that now. You know, it's it's in every single one of our social media channels and some of the advertisements that we get through Gmail and so many other places at this point. That's right. How will our current dependence on technology affect politic power structures in the future? Well, I believe that technology is going to give enormous power to those who own and control it. And that might be the state, as in China, or it might be big tech firms, or it might be both. And the reason I say that is that technology exerts a kind of power in three different ways. What This is what we mean, I think, when we say that tech firms have power. One is that it sets rules for the rest of us, which we have to follow. So to return to the self-driving car example, if you want your self-driving car to go over the speed limit, it won't. And if you want it to park illegally just for a moment, you can dash into the shops, it won't. And if you want to carry on driving, even though there's a police car asking you to stop, it won't. 
And that's just one example of a world in which the rules are increasingly coded into the technologies that we rely on to live a full and meaningful life. And so that's one way in which technology exerts power. Those who write the code. Well, in those examples, isn't that a good thing? Certainly not inherently a bad thing. I mean, but one of the things I argue in the book is that there is this hinterland at the edge of the law where from time to time we're allowed to get away with small naughty things as long as we don't do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Just take a couple of examples. 76% of British people have, have confessed to doing one of uh, one of these things, uh, paying someone cash in hand to avoid tax, uh, getting another drink at the soda dispenser when they weren't entitled to it, um, jumping onto a bus and not paying a fare, streaming an episode of television illegally. These aren't good things, and I, I wouldn't encourage them, particularly the, you know, the, ca- the cash in hand example, but they do happen. But in the future, you know, in a cashless economy, you can't pay someone cash in hand, where the fare is automatically deducted from your smart wallet when you step on the bus. You can't avoid the fare. When you, when face recognition technology is used to determine how much soft drink you get, you can't get a second helping. And if you think it's petty, in China, in Beijing's Temple of Heaven Garden, they use face recognition technology to determine how much toilet paper is dispensed to make sure that people don't take more than their fair share. Oh, wow. Um, digital rights management technology makes it increasingly difficult for us to stream Game of Thrones, whatever it is, online. So the point is that increasingly less and less of the small freedoms that perhaps we took for granted are going to be available to us. Yes, it's, it's in some respects a good thing that people will be obeying the law a bit more, but part of being human is choosing the moral option, mm-hmm. choosing to do what's right rather than just choosing to do what's possible, which isn't really a choice at all. Well. So with that, I mean, those are some new technologies that already exist, but could, you know, eventually become more universal. So what are some new technologies you are concerned about regarding specifically the future of politics? Well, uh, in the book, I don't single out any particular technology for, as a word, criticism or concern. I think that stepping back what you have is a system of technology that combines three characteristics one is what i call increasingly capable systems the idea that computer systems can do more and more of things which were previously it was thought could only be done by humans Mm -hmm. and sometimes they can do them better than us Uh, and that's some counterintuitive things like mimicking human speech or lip reading playing games whether it's chess or go They can detect lung cancer and skin cancer better than the best human experts. Um, The second characteristic is increasingly integrated technology. So we currently live in what's been called the age of the glass slab, where our main interface with technology is through the slabs that we hold in our hands. Previously, it was perhaps the keyboard and mouse, and before that, the computers were much bigger. Um, In the future, technology will be distributed into the world around us, into our architecture and our appliances and our utilities, into our clothes and even inside our bodies in the form of nanotechnology. So it will be everywhere. And the distinction between online and offline and real space and cyberspace will be less obvious. And the third thing that I point to is uh, increasingly quantified society. We produce more data every two hours now than we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. Uh, and that means there's a lot of data in the world about us and about the world generally. And so what I do is I look at all three of these factors and I, are, and I suggest that without highlighting any particular technology, they're going to usher in a world that is quite different from the one that came before. And, mm-hmm. and it'll be a, a profound change to the way that we live together. 
there are people that are about 25 to 30 years old who have been prone all of their lives um, to give away their own personal data. This could have happened when, you know, someone was signing up for things on the internet like a free trial. Um, But do you think that younger and upcoming generations will kind of grow wise to this and stop giving their information away freely? The evidence suggests the contrary. The people who are so young, that is to say perhaps born around 1995 or, or younger, that they can't remember a time before the internet, are the ones who do the most sharing online, who feel the need to share the most online, be it on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is. I think to them the idea of sharing their data is probably more natural than for many of us. I, I'm, I was born in 1989 and so I, I can remember a time before the internet but I'm one of the last people who will be able to. The, the, there is some social science about this, about attitudes, but what I would say is that they're not set in stone. I do believe that we're at a stage where the true consequences of the digital revolution, the political consequences for our freedom and for justice and for democracy haven't yet been rammed home in the na- in the way that they need to, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. I think that There are a lot of people out there who understand a lot about technology but not much about politics. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people out there who know a bit about politics but nothing about technology. And it just so happens that those are two of the most important groups in society, the people who are political and the people who are re-engineering the world through tech. And they need to know a little bit more about the other. And I think ordinary citizens, of which I'm one, need to be on little have as much understanding as possible of both of those things in order to hold the powerful to account. So in the future, um, what do you think our democracy will look like in this new digital world? I think there are going to be a number of interesting questions. I certainly don't think that any particular path is predetermined, but I think one of the earlier questions we'll have to answer is why it is that we shouldn't vote you know, using a device in our pockets on almost every issue of the day. Why would direct democracy be inferior to the system that we have just now? Because the technology, I believe, will exist for that in order in order to be possible. And there are going to be arguments either way about the merits of that kind of di- direct democracy. There will then be philosophical arguments, I think, about the role of data in democracy. Democracies are supposed to represent the people, but the amount of data in which they do so, from a legitimacy point of view, is actually surprisingly small. You know, a tick in a box every few years is scarcely a rich source of data, given that by 2020 there'll be three million books worth of data for every person on the planet. Oh my gosh. And so the question is, is when the government that truly represents the people not just use data as a matter of kind of sound public policy, but as a matter of democratic legitimacy? Right. And then there will be questions, I believe, about the use of artificial intelligence in public policy, which decisions, if any, are best taken and which systems are best run by non-human systems of great capability, perhaps not the ones taking moral decisions or decisions of life and death, but why wouldn't we have um, an AI system that runs the local water board or that controls the traffic systems or that um, generates economic solutions which are uh, looking for efficiency in the distribution of society's resources. These are all questions and debates that are going to become increasingly prominent. Uh, Already we use algorithms a lot to distribute stuff within the private sector, be it mortgages, loans, jobs and the like. 
increasingly the government will want to use them too. So I think that our democracy could look radically different from the one that we grew up with, mm -hmm. and it would be a mistake to think that everything else will change except our politics. I wrote this book because I believe that our generation faces an enormous political challenge and it's different from the ones that have come before. In the 20th century, our parents and grandparents had to answer the question, to what extent should our lives be governed by the state and civil society and what should be left to the market? That was the great ideological question of the last century. Our century is different. The question is, to what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and on what terms? And my view is that we don't yet have the words, the vocabulary, let alone the ideas or the policies or the regulations to deal with the technologies that we're unleashing. And so I would encourage everyone who reads the book to stop looking at technology just as consumers, but instead as citizens, as a new and strange form of power which is going to radically alter the way that we live together, and to make sure that we hold that power to account in the same way that human beings have always sought to hold forces to account, be they uh, civil society institutions like churches or companies or corporations or the state itself, we've never allowed great concentrations of power to be erected over us and to govern our lives in ways that we can't understand, or at least we've never allowed it for long. And I think that the time has come for us to start thinking about the next phase of human government, where we hold to heal um, those whose technologies would seek to direct our lives. Thank you again to our featured guests, Siva Vaidyanathan and Jamie Suskin, for joining us on this episode of The Oxford Comet. And as always, we would like to thank our cast and crew of The Oxford Comet. Make sure to follow us at Oxford Academic on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date regarding new podcast episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to The Oxford Comet on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Stay tuned for our next episode where we discuss the politics of food just in time for Thanksgiving. I'm Erin Katie Meehan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to vote.